Revelation chapter 14. I labeled this, um, this message the final warning. The final warning. You remember last week we looked at the first five verses of chapter 14, where it talks about the Lamb and the 144,000 Jews that had been sealed to go through the tribulation, no doubt to be a witness, to be evangelists on the earth during that wicked time, a time of difficulty. Uh, more than that, it's a time of great destruction, actually. And God had sealed those 144,000 to go through this seven-year tribulation period. And, and so we saw them again here in chapter 14. And really, if you think of chapter 14 as sort of being like an outline of things that are going to happen uh, from this time going forward, uh, at least uh, up until the return of Christ to the earth, and we read about that in chapter 19, verse 11, when we get there. But So this is really a table of contents of things that are going to be coming yet in the future from the standpoint of where we're at right now. We're somewhere in the midpoint uh, of the tribulation and when the Antichrist is, is finally revealed for who he is. And so we get into verse 6. Let's just read verse 6 down through verse 13. It says, then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the seven or having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. And another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb." And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, said the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. You'll notice as we look at, as we just read uh, chapters 6 through, uh, especially 6 through 11, you're going to see a threefold warning to those on the earth who follow the Antichrist, and, uh, and the warning is to turn from their wicked ways, to, to explain and, and share the consequences of what that devotion to this Antichrist, to the beast, is. And it's laid out there very clearly. It's a threefold warning. And again, see this as the grace of God, even during a time of great tribulation. Jesus said, and you've heard this several times, that if he didn't return at the end of this tribulation period, if he did not interrupt it, no flesh would survive. No one would survive it. It would be so horrible, and the grief and the despair would be so great that no one would survive. And so we're talking about a very serious time in history that is yet future to us. It's a time of unprecedented evil. You think it's evil now. You think there's deception now. You think there is 
uh, if it's difficult now, it's going to get a lot worse. But the good news is, for all of us, if you are in the church, if you belong to Jesus Christ, if you are born again, again, you will not see this time period that we're studying right now. And so as we look at these things, you know, think about the people around you, the people that you love. Be careful to, to share these things with them. Nobody likes to hear of judgment, but judgment is necessary. It's necessary in God's understanding. He loves tremendously. He loves fiercely. He loves so much that he literally went to the cross to die for you and me. How much more severe could that have been? It wasn't just a really good man on the earth that went to the cross. No, this is God in the flesh. Jesus Christ went to the cross for us that we might never see any of this that we're reading about. That we would never even see the second death, which is far worse than any physical death, because that second death is eternal. It never ends. I want you to think about that, because one of the things that brought me to Christ is I was scared to death when I read of these things. I thought to myself, and you know, it's good to be scared sometimes. If it draws you closer to Jesus, then the, the fright is worth it. <laughs> but, if, you know, but it's important that we understand that, that there's good news. The good news is that you don't have to go through that. But there are people who resist Christ and resist his word, and they will be going through a time of unparalleled evil and destruction. And it's coming. Can you feel it already? Can you feel it? I don't know about you, but I can sense it very, it's like the, the, it's ramping up. Things are getting prepared. Things are working in that direction. If you can't see it, you're not awake. But I believe you are all awake. Because like me, you're fed up with the lies and the deception. Empty promises. You're fed up with these things. And I yearn to be with Jesus, don't you? Do you yearn to be with him? More than anything, there's no event on this earth that could take me away from being with him. Nothing. And I pray that's the same for you. But we're going to see the grace of God. Let's look at verse 6. It says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach. And it's interesting. And he's preaching to who? To those who dwell on the earth. The church is gone. The church is removed. The church is in glory with Jesus. But now, though those who dwell on the earth, notice he's speaking the gospel, the everlasting gospel. He's preaching it. He's preaching it. It's a whole different word there. The word is evangelisto, elitlizo, and, and what it means is to do that very thing, to preach, to convince about Jesus Christ and who he is. And so he's preaching the everlasting gospel to those who dwell on the earth. And it's interesting, this is the only time you see this word gospel in the book of Revelation is right here. This is it. But God in his grace is still reaching out to people. See, God will never give up on you. You may think that he's given up on you because of some sin that you've committed or some things that you've done that God can't possibly forgive me for the horrible things that I've done. Do you know that Nebuchadnezzar is in heaven? Read Daniel chapter 4. If he's not in heaven, I'd be really surprised. He gave his heart to Christ. He gave his heart to him. And this was an evil man put many to death. He did horrible crimes. An idolater, a womanizer, a drunkard, you name it, an egomaniac. He was all those things, one of the worst. And can God redeem the worst? Absolutely. In fact, I love it when he does. 
because it confounds the world, it confounds the wise. He got saved, that's impossible. God's grace is so wonderful, it is so huge. Let your heart be taken away with that. Know that he loves fiercely, he loves you so much. He doesn't care what you've done. You care what you've done. Maybe your sins are worse than some others, but he doesn't look like upon sin like that. He sees sin as sin. Any sin can separate you from God. It doesn't matter how severe it is. We're repulsed by certain sins, but God's like, you're a sinner. And you've sinned. Is my blood efficacious? I love that word. Everybody say efficacious. Is it efficacious to cleanse you from that sin? I believe it is. If it's not, then what he said on the cross was a lie. When he said it is finished, he must have been lying. It must have been fake news. But it wasn't. Jesus said it is finished. Your price for your redemption had been paid in full. Amen? Amen? Amen. Just checking. So notice the grace of God, and I love what it says in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but as long-suffering or patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Right? He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. In fact, what does it say in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11? And God says to Ezekiel, as he's ministering to the people in, 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 uh, in Babylon, he says, Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? And boy, I think that's a message for America today. Turn, turn, turn from your evil ways. So many evil ways. Do we deserve any good thing to happen to America? None of us deserve it, but you know what? God is so gracious. And I'm praying that he is gracious with us on election day. Not that we you know, put all of our faith in any man. We certainly don't. Our king is Jesus. Our savior is Jesus. No one else. However, while we abide on this earth until he returns for us, we have to be good stewards. And we have to live here. And we ought to care about how things go. Because guess what? Your kids and your grandkids are going to inherit the mess. And if we don't do anything, if we don't rise up and do right things, folks, do you understand? Then our kids, our grandkids inherit that. I don't want that. Do you? You want the very best for them. And righteousness exalts a nation. And blessed is the nation whom God is the Lord. Is that still America? I hope it is. And what does he say in Galatians? Paul writing to them, he says, but even if we, or an angel, notice this angel's sharing the everlasting gospel to those on the earth, but Paul says in Galatians 1 verse 8, even, but even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. That's the idea. There is no other gospel than the true gospel. There is a gospel, and it's very good news. That's what we need to be about. That's what we need to be sharing. More than anything else on this earth, the gospel of Jesus Christ is what changed me, changed my heart, changed my address, ultimately when I pass from the scene, my address has changed. It was 666, Hades Way. But now it's 777, Glory Way. Amen? <laughs> and so, so that's, your address has changed too when you gave your heart to Jesus. Isn't he wonderful? Doesn't he deserve praise? Doesn't he deserve glory and honor? 
Oh, worship the king. Worship the king. In Matthew 24, Jesus speaking on this in his Olivet Discourse on the Mount of Olives, speaking to his disciples of this coming age that's coming. He said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached, notice, same word here as we see in this verse here that we see here. It will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So even after the church is removed, there's still going to be gospel activity. The 144,000 are going to be talking about Jesus. Anybody who gets saved during that time, if they're, you know, they'll be speaking about Jesus. It may cost them their life. And certainly we have this angel now toward the end of this great tribulation period, toward, toward the latter part of it, or in the midpoint onward, the last six bowls of wrath. Is, is Before those things start to come to pass, he, there's one more shot at it, folks. That's what he's saying. He's giving everybody another shot at it. Will you believe what your family's been telling you before they ended up missing I remember when I first got saved and I was reading uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 and I was reading 1 Corinthians 15 and I was reading Revelation. I was so excited about this idea of the rapture. I wrote my mom and my family a letter. It was a fairly lengthy letter. And I explained to them, if something happens to me, if I'm all of a sudden missing, and, all, all, and by the way, hundreds of thousands of other people are missing in one day in, like that, this is what happened. And I spelled it out for them. I gave them the scriptures. I wonder if my mom still has that letter. I might ask her next time I see her, Mom, do you still have that letter? Because I'd love to see it. But that's why we need to tell people about Jesus. And don't, don't misunderstand this because there is no way that we are going to evangelize the whole world before Jesus returns. That's just probably not going to happen. Should we act as if we can? Sure, we should do everything we can. But he can come today. He can come today, and there's still going to be opportunities. So we don't hold to this doctrine of reconstructivism or this doctrine of dominion theology, which states that you know, before Jesus can come back, we have to evangelize the world. We have to have a, you know, a Christian government. We have to have you know, all the Christians in office. We have to build our own kingdom here, and then he can come back. There's no way in the Bible it talks about that. So there's no way that that's going to happen. In fact, the Bible tells us that it's going to get worse before it gets better. Things on the earth aren't going to get good. What does it say in 2 Timothy verse 3? But know this, in the last days, perilous times will come. I say so. We're in them already, and it hasn't even started yet. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers. The list goes on. It's an ugly, ugly list. Ugly list. In our text in verse 7, now it says, saying, these angels said with a loud voice, this, this angel, and here's his message, fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. Again, the final chance for those on earth to get right with God. And he offers them salvation before the seven bowls of wrath are finally unleashed. And then, the Bible says, the, the wrath of God is complete. When we get to chapter 16, the bowls, the final seven bowls of wrath are going to be poured out on the earth. It's going to be horrible, folks. But at the end of that, it's done. The wrath of God is complete. And this message here sets up a very clear distinction between those who worship the beast and those who would worship and serve Jesus. Are you going to receive a mark or are you going to receive Jesus? 
Are you willing to die? You know, there may be some here that if the church was removed today and you haven't given your heart to Christ, you might be thrust into, you would be actually. At some point, you'd be thrust into this period of time called the Great Tribulation Period. Are you prepared to die for your faith if you give your heart to Christ? You can be saved. It's going to be really hard because the deception is going to be great. The delusion is going to be great. God's going to send the delusion, and it's going to be very great. It's easy now to receive Christ, but not so then. It's possible, but it's going to be very difficult. I don't want to play that kind of Russian roulette with my eternity to you. I would encourage you today, don't wait till tomorrow, don't wait till next week, don't wait until you retire and go to Florida. No, you do this today. Do not wait. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. And are you sure you know where you're going? Because if you don't know where, know for sure, I believe the Spirit of God gives you that unction in your heart where he confirms in your heart whether you are a child of God or not. So important to know that, folks, because he loves you. Don't you want the assurance? I'm so glad I have the assurance of salvation. And it's not because I've done so many good things that I'm like, oh, I've done so many good things. I'll pat myself on the back if I could, but I can't. So I've done no good works. The one work that I did is believe on him who, who, who died for my sin. That's the one work we have to do. And his work is what got the job done, right? So in verse 8, this, this third vision, this third of seven visions, it says, Another angel followed, saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen that great city, because she has made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. We are going to see later on, we get into chapter 17 and 18, we're going to spend a lot of time on this uh, Babylon and we're going to look at that uh, in more, quite a bit more detail. But notice that it says right here that it's a great city. It is a great city. And as time goes on, as I'm looking more into this, I'm really believing that Babylon that is referred here is not literal Babylon that is in the Middle East. It's covered in sand, even right now. You know, um, Saddam Hussein began building his palaces, but he was, his life was snuffed out, if you remember. And it's just sitting there in ruins. I'm not real confident that this is a, the Babylon that's, that's over there in the Middle East. I believe, and as time goes on, the more I'm reading and praying about this, that Babylon is a code name for Rome. I really believe that. Or they're intertwined somehow, mystically, and maybe there's the rub right there. But anyway, we'll look more at that. But notice what it says in Revelation chapter 17, verse 9, concerning this, this place called Babylon. And, and here is a hint of what it is. I think John was speaking in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a little bit of a code here, perhaps. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And we know that the woman rides the beast, this false religious system. And this world empire is going to be at least set up, probably in Rome. It's the only one that really fits. And Rome has always been famously known for the city on seven hills. In fact, there are seven hills in, in, the, in, in Italy right there in Rome. The Aventine Hill, the Saline Hill, Capitoline Hill, the Esquiline Hill, the Palatine Hill, the Curinal Hill, the Viminal Hill. Those are seven hills. And this city is built on the seven hills. Rome was built. It's known as the city of seven hills. 
No other city has really had that same designation. So Babylon or Rome is the city or the headquarters of this false religious system, this political and economic system that's coming upon the earth after the church is removed. But nothing's happening with it right now. It would take a great deal of effort, money, and resources to build that up to make it something. I don't know. I, I'm not really convinced that Babylon is, the, the real Babylon in the Middle East, there in Iraq, not convinced that this is the Babylon that's being referred to for many reasons, but we'll look at that more later. But its name is certainly synonymous with evil and corruption and rebellion. And we saw the beginnings of it in Revelation, or I'm sorry, in Genesis chapter 11. We saw this false religious and political system already um, developing on the earth immediately after the flood. And it's going to rear its head again and probably station itself right in Rome, perhaps. Perhaps. Now, let's go on in our text here, the next couple of verses. Notice that verses 9 through 11 lays out warnings or consequences for those who take the beast on their forehead or on their, on their uh, hand. It says, A third angel followed them, verse 9, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the cup of wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out in full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of Lamb. That doesn't sound like a very good thing, does it? But this cup of wrath, we see it in the Psalms. In Psalm 75, it says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red, it is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drink or drain and drink down. So this whole idea of the cup of his wrath is not a good thing. In the context in the scriptures, it's always in a negative context. In fact, remember when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane with his disciples that night that he was, before he was taken, it says in Matthew 26 that he went a little further and he fell on his face, remember, in the garden. He prayed, oh, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. What cup is he talking about? He's talking about the cup of wrath that he was about to take as he would be not only lashed, the beatings, the beatings and the, and, the, and the spear in the side, the crown of thorns, all those things were horrible. Most people died during those things. But let me suggest to you that the greatest thing that he did on that cross, which no man has done, is take the sin of the world upon himself. That nobody could see that, could they? All they could see was a bloodied man that he could barely be identifiable as a man on the cross. But what he did on that cross was something that wasn't, to the naked eye, could not be seen. Finally, when Jesus was on the cross, you remember, he looked up, and I can't imagine the expression on his face, how maybe his pupils just completely, you know, swelled up or, or, or shut nearly as he realized what was happening to him. He knew what was happening. He knew it had to happen, but he's never experienced it before as he took the wrath of Almighty God for the sin of every man, woman, and child that could ever be born in that one moment. Do you understand? That's hideous sin. Consider that he was sinless, he was without sin, and then he takes the, all of the junk, all the, the repercussions of our sin upon himself in one instant. It's overwhelming to consider. But Jesus, remember in, in verse 42 here, he says again the second time, he went away and he, said, he prayed, he said, Oh my father, if the cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. He didn't want to go through that. Is there any other way? He knew there was no other way. There was no other way. The scriptures have been foretelling it for centuries, even a couple thousands of years. 
There was no going back. He knew that very much. When we look at verses 10 and 11, we're going to see the clearest references concerning the fact that punishment in hell is for eternity. This is a great subject, isn't it? Aren't you all excited? Isn't this just like something that just makes you want to stand up and sing a hymn? This is difficult stuff, but here it is. Here it is. But notice that hell is eternal. In Revelation 20, verse 10, it says, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire. This is the final resting place for all the wicked, including the devil and the false prophet and the Antichrist and all those who follow him and have rejected Christ. Ultimately, this is the final end. And they were cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What part of that don't we understand? Some have tried to say, well, it's just annihilationism, that once you're dead, you know, you just, you, you just black out. It's sort of like when you go under anesthesia, when you have an operation, you, just, you don't remember anything. Is it like that? No, the Bible tells us something different, that there is life after our physical life. We will all be resurrected, some to eternal uh, glory and some to eternal damnation, and that's the truth. And a holy God does this because his love is great and so is his wrath. Aren't you glad you're on the good side of God? (laughs) Aren't you glad you have peace with God? And now because you have peace with God, guess what? You have the peace of God. Can you lay down your head at night without taking an Ambien? You can lay down your head at night because you're like, Lord, you know all my sin. I've confessed it today. My my slate is clean before you. What grace is that? What, What a greater feeling is that? People try to find that with alcohol, with drugs, and with sexual partners. They try to, they try to get that feeling of, of whatever it is, the release of that. There's no greater re- release than to know that you're right with God and he loves you. And guess what? You're going. You're going up. Amen? I'm so looking forward to that. Yes, it's something worth to clap about. It's something worth jumping up and grabbing paint and spray painting ourselves <laughs> like they do in the football games. <laughs> yeah! But notice in verse 10 it says, He himself, the, who follows the Antichrist, shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out in full strength, the cup of his indignation. And there is a wrath. God's wrath is very real. In Isaiah 34, verses 1 through 10, let me read something to you. Judge, it's speaking of the judgment of the nations, it says, Come near, you nations, to hear and heed, you people. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all things that come forth from it. For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations and his fury against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to the slaughter. Also their slain shall be thrown out. Their stench shall rise from their corpses and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. Sounds like a really great scene, doesn't it? Sounds like the Lord of the Rings. And all the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved, notice, and the heavens shall roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine and as fruit falling from a fig tree. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Edom and on the people of my curse for judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made overflowing with fatness, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord is a sacrifice in Basra. Remember, the 144,000 are going to flee to Basra. And God's going to judge Basra when he comes back to the earth. He's going to rescue those 144,000 that are going to be in that land, that place of Petra. And there's going to be a great bloodbath. Not not for his 144,000, but for those who get in his way. He is going to judge the earth. And it's going to get much, much worse than that. Much, much worse. 
But we know that hell is a real place. As we look at this eternal thing, it's, 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 it's a serious thing. Notice in Matthew chapter 25, what did Jesus say? He will also say to those, in his, in his millennial reign, he's going to divide, uh, it's called the sheep and the, jo- the goats judgment. And he's going to divide those who stood with him and those who departed from him. And he's going to say for those who departed from him, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for who? The devil and his angels. It was originally prepared for them. It really wasn't designed for man initially. But in our rejection, ultimately that's where we will be if we don't believe in Christ. I had a friend, you know, he told me these things and, and I'm so glad he told me the bad news. Because nobody likes to tell the bad news. Because unless you know the bad news, the gospel isn't the gospel. Because the gospel is good news. But before there's good news, you've got to know what the problem is, Right? It's sort of like when you, you know, when you're having a, you know, a financial problem, you know, and you owe thousands of dollars and you get a check in the mail unbeknownst to you from a relative for that amount. You know, same kind of thing. You have this real desperate need. I got a real problem here and all oh, the gospel. The gospel saves. In 2 Peter th- Chapter 2, it says, For if God did not spare the angels, he didn't even spare the angels who sinned, but he cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. We know, we already looked at this when we were in Second Peter, or in First Peter, and um, we'll look at this, uh, we, we looked at this uh, prior when we were in uh, James as well, and Jude, but these um, angels are going to be reserved for judgment. And the Lord knows, verse 9, how to deliver the godly out of temptations, that's you and I, how to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. There is a day of judgment. Even the angels who did not keep their proper domain, they but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And Hades is a place where when, we, when people who... Don't give their heart now when they die. The Bible says that for us, believers, to, to, um, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But it's also true for those who die outside of Christ, they go to Hades. We call it hell. It's a container, if you will, a place where the wicked dead live. And they are going to spend torment there until God takes that, that container, if you will, and he dumps it into the lake of fire. We'll see that as we look here at Revelation 19. We'll look at these three verses, because the beast and the false prophet, they're first cast into this lake of fire. It says in uh, chapter 19, verse 19, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse, that's Jesus coming back, and his army, that's you and I and the angels. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Notice, these two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And then in Revelation chapter 20, what does it say, the first three verses? And then I saw another angel, and this is after the thousand years. Satan is chained up for a thousand years. And it says, I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit where Satan uh, is going to be in a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of that dragon, that old serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and put a seal on him. 
And so now the thousand-year reign, the millennial reign, goes on with Christ, and then he's released at the end of that. And then notice, in Revelation 20, verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast now. He's taken out of his abyss, this place of time out, if you will, for a thousand years. Now he also is cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. Doesn't sound like a happy party, to, does it? I hear teenagers speak of that, you know, and they get, they, you know, they get a little arrogant and they're drinking beer. You know, you hear them, I've heard it before. Yeah, man, I can't wait to go to hell. My friends will be there, it'll be a big party. Okay, really? You think it's going to be a big party? You know, we know that it's just ignorance. It's just ignorance, they don't know. But it's, it's eternal and it will last forever. But notice... In verses, well, look at verse 11. The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. So this is forever and ever. This is eternal, eternal. But notice, and there's a nice clearing of the clouds now, and I'm really thankful for that. Notice in verses 12 and 13, these two verses are the assurance of the believers going through this, that they're going to make it through. Notice what it says in verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and of the faith of Jesus. Then I heard the voice of, from heaven saying to me, Write, blessed are the dead from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. These wonderful saints during this time giving their hearts to Christ and uh, they will be rewarded you know, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. It's important that we receive him. Because if we don't, this is what, you know, these things, these awful things will happen for eternity. But notice in verse 14, it says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And so now we're seeing another judgment coming, and this, we believe, is Jesus Christ in his second coming, but coming in a, in a sense of, of, of pouring out his wrath. And this is another symbol, if you will, or a, or a representation of that. We see the Son of Man in Matthew chapter 24, you know, Jesus even said it, Then the sign of the Son of Man, Jesus speaking of himself, will appear in heaven. All the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on what? The clouds of heaven with power and great glory. In his second coming, that's how he's going to come. And he's not coming as the meek, mild lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No, he's going to come back as a lion of the tribe of Judah, exacting vengeance upon a world that has rejected his son, his only means of salvation. The Son of Man. We see that in other places. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 and 32. We also see it in Daniel chapter 7. What does Daniel chapter 7 say? I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and then he was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Who does this sound like? It's Jesus. Daniel prophesying of Jesus, the Son of Man, coming to bring judgment, to bring judgment upon a world that has rejected him. In John chapter 5, 
Jesus said, speaking of himself, the Son of Man, and it was given him, verse 27, that God the Father gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. He has the only right to judge. No one else. No one else has that right. Notice in verse 14 that he was given a crown. This crown is not a diadem. This is a Stephanos. It's a, it's a crown that is given to victors in races and in games. And so this is a crown that Jesus has on as he executes judgment. But ultimately he will be outfitted with many crowns, it says in Revelation 19. Many crowns, many diadems, a whole different crown, a kingly crown over many kings. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You compare that with Daniel chapter 2 and all the kingdoms of the earth and you look at all those kingdoms. He is the king of kings. He has many diadems on his head when he returns. Many crowns. In verse 14 he says, and he had in his hand a large sharp sickle. And this is what a sickle looks like for those of you who don't do much farming. But it's just a handle with a curved rounded kind of blade. And, and this is the kind of thing that He's coming back with. It may be symbolic, but either way, he's coming back, and he's going to have a sickle in his hand. And notice, and another angel came out of the temple, and this is the temple in heaven, not the tribulation temple on the earth at that time. And notice, what does the other angel say? He cries with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you, for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. The harvest of the earth is ripe. This word ripe is really interesting because it's not just a ripe fruit. It's actually fruit that is overripe. It is so ripe. Have you ever seen like an orange when you let it sit on your counter for about three weeks? At first it sounds so, it was so plump and so good and everything. And all of a sudden that three weeks it starts to have indentations of it because all the moisture is starting to go out from it. And it starts to um, rot within and it starts to lose its moisture. You've seen it. That's the kind of thing he's talking about. It's way overdue is the idea. It's overripe. It's way overdue. This is the, the harvest of the earth is ripe. They are just ripe for the judgment. Ripe for judgment. And this ought to remind us of Matthew chapter 13. Remember, Jesus gave the parable of the wheat and the tares. And then in chapter 13, verse 37 through 43, he gives the explanation. And that's what I want to read to you. He says, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. So here, he's describing, he's, he's given us the, the interpretation of the parable. Just like Nebuchadnezzar's dreams were interpreted by Daniel. Just in case anybody's wondering, he, gives the, he tells you what it is, these symbols. What are they? What do they mean? Well, the field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, the, good, the believers. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one, those who don't believe in Christ. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Does that sound familiar with what we're reading? Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and they will be cast into the furnace of fire. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And see, this is the stuff, folks, that we, none of us want anyone that we know to go through. This is the compassion we have to get over ourselves in the sense of sharing things like this. 
because nobody wants to share that. You can lovingly tell them, but they must be told. They must be told the bad news and the good news. And maybe preferably in that order, we must tell them. We must tell them. So he who sat on the throne, verse 16, thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And so this is a judgment. And as we look at verses 17 through 20, this speaking expressly about God pouring out his wrath upon the vine of the earth. Now this is interesting because it says, notice, another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud voice to him who had this sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather, notice, the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Fully ripe. They are mature. They're ready to go. Not like the dried up stuff that we talked about before. This word for ripe is a little bit different. It's right at that point where it's the juiciest. when that peach that you pull off the tree in Canandaigua in the summer and it's just bursting and it's just like dying to be eaten. And you, you know the kind when you just put your finger on it and it kind of dents in a little bit? You know what's happening. You know how good that is and you have to eat it over the sink because it's spli- splashing all over you, dripping down your elbows. And you just hose yourself down. But anyway, I digress. So, see, this is good that we inter- <laughs> put a little levity in here because this is tough. But notice, thrust in your sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth. Now, some believe that this could be referring to unbelieving Jews, because certainly the Jews were known as the vine. We see that in, in verses, the verse uh, Psalm 80. You have brought out, you have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. And then in verse 14, return, we beseech you, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see and visit this vine. The vine is Israel, but this may not be Israel. This is the vine of the earth. And there are other chapters and verses we could look at, but we're not going to take the time to go there. But you can write those other two down that talks about uh, possibly Israel being the vine. But really what this is setting up, I believe, is the true vine versus the vine of the earth. We know that Jesus is the true vine. He said so himself in John chapter 15. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Jesus is the true vine, but there's also, whenever there's a true vine, there is also a false vine. The vine of the earth, what is that possibly? It could be speaking of the Antichrist and this false religious system that he is going to be overseeing and this political and economic one world government, the new world order. Believe me, it's going to find its summation in this time. That's why we have to resist it now. The new world order is not a good thing. We saw it back in Genesis chapter 11 with the, at Babel. Believe me, whenever, when there's a one world order, it is never good. It is always, we're asking for totalitarianism. We're asking for despots. We're asking for, um, what's the word, uh, draconian measures. Have you experienced some of those of late? I think we have. It's going to be to the nth degree when that comes. But I believe this true vine is setting up a difference, a comparison to the vine of the earth, which I believe is more likely the Antichrist. And these clusters of grapes are probably those that are a part of the apostate church at that time. 
People who've gone to church and they never received Christ, they, they hardly ever get into the word. They have no desire to worship Jesus. They just kind of go through the motions. And then they finally are just willing to accept anything that anybody tells them instead of searching it out like a Berean in the word of God. So now their hearts are completely, they don't know what they believe because now they got, there's all these people have left the earth, have been removed, and here we are. And now this guy is showing miracles and signs. Wow, it must be the guy. He must be the one. We've got to worship him because nobody can do that. You get my point? We're being prepared. And there's so many people in churches all across our land, all across the world, that don't know Christ. They sit in pews, they make offerings, they do good things, and they might even be good people. But God is not going to send a, you know, he's not going to, um, it doesn't matter whether you're a good person or not. You could be a great person. You could give all your money to the church. It won't make a difference when, he stand, when you stand before him and he says, well, but what did you do with my son? That's the one thing, the one thing that sets us free is Jesus. If we don't have his blood upon us, there is no hope for us. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how many times you've walked Virginia Root across the, the road you know, and, and helped her and carried in her groceries and given her Kindle gift cards. It doesn't matter. If you don't have Christ upon you, there's no hope for you. No matter what. You could have given billions of dollars. George Soros could get, you know, he could say, you know, I'm going to give all my money to the church because I want to feel good about who I am. Fine. Start here. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, we don't want his money. No amount of money is going to get you to heaven. The vine of the earth. So, verse 19, the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and, and threw it, notice, into the winepress of the wrath of God. This is speaking of what we believe is Armageddon. In fact, let me read some verses to you in Joel chapter 3. This is amazing. Write these down because you can look at them. And it is going to be a horrible time. Armageddon is no easy thing. When we were in Israel just uh, in March, February and March, you know, we, we go to Armageddon. You see the valley. I, I, I didn't have time to find the pictures and put them up, but it's amazing. Napoleon once visited that area, and he said this would be the perfect place for a battle. And there is going to be a battle there. And, and just to be driving through the road, right through the middle of that Armageddon Valley, it's really Har Megiddo, which is, um, uh, it's a tell. There, there, there's a, a, it's a long story, but there's many civilizations uh, built up and, and they're, they're kind of destroyed and they build another on top. But it's really a tell. But it's right there in the valley and it's beautiful. The Israeli army, the Air Force, has got an air base right in the center of it. And you can be on Mount Carmel looking down upon it and you can see the Israeli F-16s or F-24s, whatever they are, come out of the hornet's nest underneath the ground. Little levers bring them up on the floor and they, they take off like a hornet. They come back and they land and they disappear in the middle of this valley. And to know that this valley is going to be the valley that the Antichrist and his armies are going to be flooding into to come down, start, starting in the north, coming down to the south to destroy Jerusalem and all the Jews. The Antichrist, filled with rage, he just hates them so badly. Sort of like the, sort of like the press hates our president. The Antichrist hates the Jews, that, that hatred. But notice in Joel chapter 3, 
For behold, in those days and at that time, and, he, and, and Joel is prophesying of the time that we're looking at right now, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them into the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is that Jezreel Valley, which is right, it's the valley of Jehoshaphat. It's that, 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 that area right in between the two mountain ranges going all the way up to the north, right from Jerusalem, uh, between the, the, the Temple Mount and the uh, the Mount of Olives, there's a, there's a valley there, the, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, and that valley goes all the way up to the north, all the way up to the Valley of Armageddon, the Armageddon Valley. It's a nice little pathway for an army to come down, very well suited for that kind of thing. And he says, I'll bring them into the Valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage, Israel, God says, whom they have scattered among the nations. They also have divided my land. Has any, have, have nations been trying to divide the land of Israel and make it into two separate states? God says, that's my land. Stay away from it. What does it say? In Joel chapter, same, same chapter, verse 11. Assemble and come, all you nations, and gather all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be weakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, here it is, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. There is going to be a great slaughter in that valley, and it's going to be so horrific. The Antichrist and all of his armies, even men from the east, are going to come over, and it's going to be a bloodbath. It is going to be one of the worst scenes in history. It's going to make the Holocaust of Germany, of Nazi Germany, look like a child's play. In Revelation, we're going to look at this in a few weeks, in, in chapter 16, verse 12, it speaks of this time period, the, ba- the, valley of, uh, the battle of Armageddon. What does it say in verse 12? Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, which you know separates really the east from the Middle East, and so, or the Far East. And so it says that the angel is going to pour out his bowl on the river Euphrates and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, speaking of the devil, out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, for they are spirits of demons, notice, performing signs which go out to do what? Go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to do what? To gather them to the battle of that great day of Almighty God, We're speaking about that right now. Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And here it is. And they gathered them together to the place called in the Hebrew Armageddon. There it is. In Zechariah chapter 14, Zechariah, an Old Testament prophet. He sounds so New Testament. Sometimes I forget he's in the Old Testament. But Zechariah says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations together against Jerusalem. Notice that. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Here it is. He's going to be going on to Basra. He's going to take care of business down there, bring up his remnant from there. In the Lord, in that day, he will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west. You've heard this before, making a very large valley. 
It's going to be a bloodbath. And notice in verse 20 of our text this morning, and the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress. Notice, he's likening this harvest, this, this reaping of the earth, he's, he's likening it to a, a grape harvest. And what they would do in those days, and you can see uh, these kind of uh, olive, and, uh, they're olive and grape presses in Israel. And you, we, you see many of them when you go. And they would either put the grapes in the big bin and they would get in there and they would step on them or they would have a, a, a something that would crush it and the, 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 the grape juice would run out a little hole on the side. He said, he's likening this slaughter to that. He said, it's just going to be gushing out. When those first, that first pressing, man, it's just all coming out. It's just little pieces here. Sorry to be so graphic, but it's going to be ugly. It's going to be ugly. And notice, the blood came out of the wine press up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. 1,600 furlongs. We don't have time to um, go to um, some other places, but turn with me. Turn with me now to Revelation 19, because we're going to finish up here almost. Bear with me. The Bible has a lot to say, and there's even more, but we're just highlighting some of the big parts. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. Again, the battle of Armageddon, and it's going to be at its apex when Christ comes back with all of us. Notice what it says. Verse 11, now I saw heaven open. And I don't know about you, but this is the part, man, it just brings tears to my face. This is what I'm longing. I'm longing for the rapture first, but I'm looking forward to the day when this happens. Not because of the bloodshed, not because of the horrible things that are going to happen to those armies, those men, and those people. I don't have any joy in my heart for the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the devil. They're... They can go to their place. Thank you very much. But you know what? To come back with Christ, where he will rule and reign for a thousand years, on this earth, in this Jerusalem that is currently sitting over there right now, he is going to set up his millennial reign there for a thousand years, a thousand literal years. Notice, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. Excuse me. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns, these diadems, because he's the king of kings and lord of lords, right? He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his head, what is called, or excuse me, hard to see through these tears in my eyes. And his name is called what? The Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's you and me, folks. We're coming back with him. And we're not going to be outfitted with 44 magnums and glocks. No, this is going to be something that he is going to take care of all by himself. We are just going to witness it. He's going to, with a word. I mean, think about it. He spoke and he said, he spoke and he created the heavens and the earth. And he said, oh, it's good. I made light. He spoke and it happened. Believe me, he can speak, and all this can happen at once. He can devastate the whole thing by just saying, you cease to exist. It's done. It could be that simple. He doesn't need to lift a sword. He doesn't need to do anything. But notice, now out of his mouth, 
And it says, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that which, uh, and obviously that's symbolic, of course, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written. I love this. Oh, God. <laughs> King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts... The kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked the signs in his presence. Notice, and these two were cast into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is a horrible scene. This is the judgment, finally, of God. But notice that it says there in the last verse of verse 20 that it's going to be 1,600 furlongs, which is approximately 180 miles. And just so you know, up in uh, the Valley of Armageddon, all the way down to Basra in Edom, where, God, where Jesus is going to come back and rescue those 144,000, that range between that area to the Mount of Megiddo is roughly about 180 miles, which is really roughly what this is. 1,600 stadia, 1,600 furlongs, roughly 180, maybe 200 miles. That's about how the distance of that is. It's incredible how accurate the word of God is. Can you trust it? Has he been faithful? Has he been faithful to you? And finally, let's end with this. This is an evil harvest that God is going to, these are horrible judgments that God is going to bring, but there is a harvest yet before us. What did Jesus say in John chapter 4, verse 35? He says, Do not say there are still four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. See, that's what it is when you share the gospel with somebody. Isn't it wonderful? That's the harvest. The harvest is ripe. And believe me, after this election, there are going to be a lot of hurting people in our country. It may be the Republicans. It may be the Democrats. But guess what? It doesn't matter. There's a lot of hurting people. There's never been a better time for us to shine as lights for Christ in this world that we're living in. And folks, listen, don't let our politics get in the way of that. Granted, you may have somebody that you want to be in office, and that's fine and good, but you know what? It doesn't matter. Anybody you have to be willing to share with because they are no different than we are. You remember when your life was a mess, and we all need Jesus Christ. We need Jesus Christ more than anything else. Regardless of our election, that has to be our mandate from God, to reach everyone, regardless of who they're affiliated with. It doesn't matter. Who cares? Because this life, this earth is going to end shortly, and yet eternity awaits all of us. What are we going to do with that? Am I not going to witness to you because you voted for somebody I didn't care for? 
No, I need, to, I need to witness to you because you're a person that God loves. Even if we don't agree on certain things, so what? So what? The level, the playing field has been leveled. We must do that. I love what it says in Psalms, and we'll end here. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And blessed are the feet of those who give the gospel of peace. Amen? That's what we need to be about. Let's stand. Be a lover of people, folks. Be a lover of God and a lover of people. Don't let the politics get in the way. There's something so much more greater than a president. It's serious. Don't misunderstand me. We need to treat this election with great gravity and with great, you know, I mean, I don't want to under, you know, undermine that in any way. However, after this earth is gone, we're talking eternity. And that demands a greater level of scrutiny. It demands a greater level of sincerity and gravity on my part because that's ultimately where everyone is going to spend an eternity in heaven or they're going to spend an eternity in hell long after all this stuff is gone. And boy, there's people who need it. They need to hear that truth from us and help us not to alienate them by politics. Something more greater, something much greater is at stake here. Amen? Father, we thank you for this time. Pray that, God, you would encourage our hearts, strengthen our faith. Lord, help us to be great ambassadors for you, Father. Help us to not be smug. And help us, even if our, uh, the person we may be voting for, even if he wins the election, Father, help us to be careful. God, not rubbing it in people's noses. Not gloating. Help us to be humble before you. And go way beyond everything else because, Lord, that is the one thing that the world cannot understand is for us to reach beyond all that stuff and say, God loves you and therefore I love you. Can we love God? Can we love people? Help us by your spirit, Lord. Fill us again, strengthen us, baptize us with your spirit. Give us boldness, Lord. Give us your heart for the lost. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.